It's the Larry Kudlow Show. Free market prosperity starts here. Now, here's Larry Kudlow. Hello, folks. Larry Kudlow here. It's a great pleasure to be with you. We got so much to talk about. You know, there's, uh, I just want to start out by saying this is a great country. It's a great country. Why do I say it's a great country? Because our nation's capital is producing such bad policies. And there's so much vitriol. And it's like nothing's getting solved. But it's a great country. You know what? This too will pass. How's that? So kind of maybe one of the themes of the show today. We're in this kind of weird, big government, socialist, climate change, I hate capitalism, I hate businesses. We're in this weird period. But this too will pass. You know, this will, we've seen these little progressive woke interludes before. We've seen them before. They will pass. The cavalry's coming. The Democrats have had their shot. They've moved so far to the left. There's not one iota, scintilla, inch of common sense anywhere. And all of it's sort of encapsulated by this goofy, dumb uh, Inflation Reduction Act, which has been ridiculed everywhere you look. And I'm not going to help it, uh, although there was one small thing that Senator uh, Cinema got right. But, you know, it's like... You get yourself, what, a $900 billion spending bill, the original bill. Remember, go back, uh, I don't know how many months, six months ago, whenever they introduced the Build Back Better bill, which was a $5 trillion bill, larded up with massive spending and Green New Deal, and high taxes on successful earners and small businesses and wealthy people and confiscation of wealth, all that stuff. So here they are, still six months later, or however many, eight months later, still limping down the road, desperately trying to get something done before they get booted out of office in November. And they've got this uh, Inflation Reduction Act, which I guess, depending, I haven't seen the official, there is no official scorecard. They're going to be voting on amendments today, Votorama on the floor of the Senate. It's probably about a, a nine, eight or $900 billion bill, okay? Eight or $900 billion bill with some small but nasty tax hikes and this whole IRS craziness going after ordinary people, small businesses, et cetera, et cetera, conservatives. You can bet the IRS is going to go after conservatives. You can bet that, okay? They're going to get $80 billion to hire 87,000 more IRS agents to collect underreported taxes. What a scam, underreported First of all, remember Lois Lerner, go back, 2013, Obama administration, second term, Lois Lerner, a left-wing political operative in the IRS harassing conservative groups. And she was called on the carpet, made to testify. She apologized. Then she ran out of town three steps ahead of the dog catcher. Otherwise, they would have thrown her in jail. Probably should have thrown her in jail. But this IRS thing, you know, get ready. They're going to be at conservative political action committees, uh, religious conservatives they'll go after, pro-life uh, conservatives. 
And then they'll go after small business and Uber drivers and waitresses and people that own their own companies. Really? It's just all utter night. It assumes, and here's a typical left-wing woke assumption. It assumes that we all spend our lives trying to cheat the tax collector. But we don't. The vast, vast, vast majority. I know there's some rotten apples. The vast, vast, vast majority of people want to pay their taxes according to the tax law. That's what they do. Americans are, by and large, by and large, Americans are law-abiding. Okay? I know there's a lot of rotten apples who ought to be in jail, who shouldn't, who are in the jail, but that's a different subject. But on taxes, most people want to do the right thing. Here's the problem with the t- The problem is the damn tax code. This tax code is so complex. It's so complicated. Nobody knows what it means. You know, you could take a couple of tax provisions and go out and find yourself five or six tax accountants and they will disagree on what the provision means. And then if the IRS disagrees with their disagreement, oh, you're underreporting, we're going to fine you, we're going to take you to jail, we're going to harass you, we're going to close down your bank accounts. All this stuff. That's all this is about. It's a terrible tax code. If you had a nice, simple, Steve Forbes-like flat tax, low-rate, simple, simplification, we wouldn't need all these IRS agents. We wouldn't have to go to court. We wouldn't have to spend tens of thousands and, in many cases, millions of dollars to hire lawyers and accountants to so-called get in compliance with what the IRS means. Half the time, the IRS people don't even know what it means. This is a function of the terrible tax system. It's not about Americans breaking the law. But it will be used, mark my words, kids, it will be used to harass conservative groups. That will be part of it. You'll see, always happens. And then they say, well, it's going to raise $250 billion. We're going to recover unreported fees. Sure we are. And so less the $80 billion, it'll be $150 billion to cut the budget deficit. It's all nonsense. None of that will happen. It's all BS. Honestly, it's all BS. It's a terrible thing. Democrats love this stuff. They love this stuff. We're all a bunch of tax cheats. Only they... Only the permanent bureaucracy in the D.C. swamp knows best, right? Wrong. So, okay, the Senate will be voting today and I guess tomorrow, lots and lots of amendments on all the different parts of this Inflation Reduction Act, which, by the way, all these economic models have said is no inflation reduction. The CBO said the Congressional Budget Office, you know, these are not rapid supply-side Republican types, believe me. More career staff in Washington, the bowels of the bureaucracy. But the Congressional Budget Office says, nope, no, it won't, won't affect inflation. Joint Tax Committee, no, it won't, won't, won't affect inflation. The University of Pennsylvania Wharton model, no, it won't, won't affect inflation. The Tax Foundation, no, it won't, won't affect inflation. Nada, no good. Only Joe Biden. 
and his economic advisors in the White House and Chuck Schumer and now Joe Manchin. That's going to cut inflation. No, it's not. It has nothing to do with inflation. In fact, in fact, there is a fair piece of spending in here. I mean, I thought we learned, we, the country, we economic experts, I guess we didn't learn. We, members of Congress, we, the Democratic Party. I mean, basically, there's, a, you know, the way they're scoring this thing, and we'll get more information on scorecard. But um, all these uh, Green New Deal, climate change, uh, tax credits and deductions. By the way, there's so many tax credits littered throughout the uh, tax code. That's one reason. Nobody knows what these credits are, how to apply them. I mean, that's one of the biggest problems. Tax credits, by the way, is nothing more than spending through the tax code. It's a terrible idea. Complicated. Nobody understands it. So many rules and regulations. But anyway, there's about $450 billion. That's what's scored. $450 billion. And then there's, um, they say, the Obamacare, social spending, health care subsidies for wealthy people, by the way, up to three, four 400000 You can get it. Uh, that's $64 billion. No, it's not. Over 10 years, it's uh, about $250 billion. So you've got to add that back in. So $450, $250 billion, what's that? It's about $700 billion. And then let's not forget, let's not forget, please, two weeks ago they passed the CHIPS Plus bill, corporate welfare bill, aimed at semiconductor companies, but it's also the usual Green New Deal, larding it up. Energy Department gets hedge funds, you know, slush funds, Commerce Department gets slush. Anyway, that thing is $280 billion. Call it $300 billion. So I'm at now $450 uh, plus $150, I'm You know, I'm at about $900 billion of spending if it's scored right, if it is scored right. So that's inflationary. That's inflationary. And it'll be spent out as fast as their little fingers can spend it out. So that ain't nothing. We don't need it. Nobody wants this stuff. It's the most unpopular bill. Every American, every man or woman who's worked in business or follows this in the papers and the media and radio and TV, anybody who follows this knows more spending by Uncle Sam on top of already too much spending in the last uh, 18 months is inflationary. They know that. They don't want it. They don't want climate change. What they want is $2 gasoline. They don't want $100 a barrel oil. What they want is $50 or $60 a barrel oil. They don't want high grocery and food prices, which is caused in part by the oil shock, hitting fertilizers and whatnot. They know they they don't want to end fossil fuels. I had Rick Perry on, former energy secretary, governor of Texas, a a truly great American. Fossil fuels are the backbone of the American energy and power system and will be so for another 100 years at least. And by the way, nat gas is clean burning, and we should add nuclear to that. But my point is Americans do not want to end fossil fuels. Only the far-left, radical, woke Bidens want to end fossil fuels, or the Democratic Party want to end fossil fuels. The rest of the country knows oil, and we have the cleanest oil in the world, natural gas, 
even coal's getting cleaner and cleaner with carbon capture and storage and sequestration. Nothing against wind turbines and solar, but that ain't going to do it. It's only 5 or 6%. Amer- ordinary Americans know this. They don't agree with the administration about ending fossil fuels, but that's what this bill is all about, ending fossil fuels. And it is a terrible idea. Nobody wants this. And all the tax birds, the IRS, plus assorted tax cats and dogs. I'll come back to the tax thing. Kirsten Sinema, by the way, did something good. There's something good here. Uh, We'll come back to that after we take a quick break. And then the jobs report yesterday was good. I'm all for more Americans working. I'm afraid I don't think it's going to last. But we'll talk some more about that. And by the way, folks, I got Michael Goodwin in, the Pulitzer-winning columnist for the New York Post. We're going to talk about Lee Zeldin, Republican candidate for governor, who's doing relatively well in the polls. He is the last hope for New York. I'm telling you, Lee Zeldin, Congressman Lee Zeldin. They tried to kill him in upstate New York, but he had a black belt and he could fend them off. Anyway, that's some of the highlights of this show. I am Larry Kudlow. We will be right back after this brief message. Now back to the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. By the way, join us during the week. It's great fun. Fox Business Network. Name of the show's Kudlow, 4 to 5 p.m. Eastern Time, every day. Can't get there at 4 for some reason. Call up your favorite nine-year-old who will show you how to DVR the show. <laughs> no problem. Nine-year-olds do that. Uh, here, by the way, <clears throat> you can get us uh, throughout the country. Um, go on the internet, LarryCudlowShow.com, LarryCudlowShow.com. You can live stream us on the internet. That's where you get a lot of our ratings come from that, big numbers across the country. We're syndicated in parts of the country. If you live stream us, uh, you can hear us across the uh, across the pond, throughout the globe. And we have quite a following in the solar system, too. A lot of people in the solar system. Or I don't know if they're people, they're beings. But they're all dialed in Saturday morning uh, to hear some of the dumbness of the Democratic Party. Now, on this uh, Inflation Reduction Act, which has no inflation reduction and is spending about $900 billion, there's a lot of taxes in here. Cinema, uh, Kirsten Cinema, and, you know, my friend Joe Manchin broke my heart. He signed on to this thing. Uh, I spoke to him during the week. But uh, he's uh, bound and determined. Senators uh, Kirsten Cinema from Arizona has also signed on, but she did get some positive changes. Uh, this fifteen uh, percent minimum corporate tax, which is so devastating for business investment, it's not it's not a tax on profits; it's tax on book profits, not IRS profits, what you actually pay. It's a tax on book profits, which is a different definition. Um, that they're saying that you know, 200 companies don't pay their fair share or 200 companies didn't pay enough in taxes. The reason is they invest. If they invest in equipment, technology, new buildings, if they invest, they get to deduct that investment in year one. It's called rapid depreciation. And it was an intentional legal part of the 2017 
tax cut, the Trump tax cut, which succeeded beyond our wildest dreams. So Democrats, of course, don't care about economic growth. They don't care about business investment. They don't care about workers. They say they do, but they don't. So anyway, cinema got rid of that. It's called a carve-out. So now you can continue to deduct your business investment, which, by the way, the biggest beneficiary of business investment is not rich people. It's middle-income working folks, blue collars, hard hats, middle and lower middle. That's what all the studies show. We've known this for years. As You know, it's not left-wing rhetoric. They have to pay their fair share, blah, blah, blah. It's just nothing to do with that. Right? If you buy a bunch of new equipment, technologies, it could be computers, it could be any darn thing. If you make improvements to your buildings or your factories, you get to deduct it. Immediate expensing, 100%. So, yes, that lowers your tax bill for good reasons. All right, cinema got that back in. That's a plus. Good. Yes. Absolutely. Give her a plus. Now, she traded that off uh, a 1% tax on stock buybacks by these companies, which, you know, it's not the worst thing in the world, but it's not good. I mean, it does penalize investors. You know, 1% tax could mean fewer buybacks. I'm not a big fan of buybacks. I've never really, I prefer if you, if these companies have spare cash, I think they're better off giving it to the shareholders in the form of higher dividends. But anyway, that's in there. Uh, the wall street journal editorial was, um, substituting one bad tax, uh, for another. I don't know. I got it around here someplace. Uh, I don't know. Democrats trade one, Bad tax increase for another. Well, I would tell you, being able to deduct 100% of your business investment is much, 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 much more important. So my hat's off to her. She did good. She did good on that. But you know what? There's so much garbage in here. Here, here, I'm going to read list of taxes here. The war against fossil fuels, which is the... War in favor of four or five dollar gasoline or higher. Sixteen cents, sixteen point four cent per gallon excise tax increase on oil. Thirty three percent increase in onshore and offshore oil and gas drilling. Five hundred percent hike in oil and gas lease rates. Higher methane emissions fees for oil and gas drilling. New methane emissions charges on producers and distributors. The natural gas tax. The natural gas. $5 million for the EPA for ESG reporting, environment and social. What a lot of garbage. They're giving $45 million to the uh, Environmental Protection Agency, and they're giving it. Here's the key point. We're going to talk about this later. They're giving the EPA authority to regulate greenhouse gases, which goes against the Supreme Court decision and will undoubtedly be taken into court. They're trying to slip that authority to regulate greenhouse gases, which could affect your power grids, your utility generators. This was the controversial West Virginia versus the EPA decision, which said you can't do that. You cannot force utilities to get rid of their fossil fuels 
because Congress didn't write a law. Now, what they've slipped into reconciliation is very close to allowing the EPA to force a change in utility power generation. It's going to be taken to court. It opens the door. It is a very bad idea. So we will we will talk some more. We've got Senator Ron Johnson in Wisconsin coming up. We'll talk some more about the Inflation Reduction Act, which does nothing to reduce inflation, and why the country is just sick of these whacked out, left-wing, greeny, I hate business and free enterprise and capitalism Democrats. You know, I'm so tired of it. I'm just tired of it. From Wall Street to the White House, this is The Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. This is The Larry Kudlow Show. And we welcome a dear friend and one of America's greatest patriots in the U.S. Senate, Senator Ron Johnson of the great state of Wisconsin. Thank you, Mr. Johnson, for your time Saturday morning. And so I just want to lead off with this. I sort of (laughs) I cover this stupid bill. I mean, it's a pathetic bill from a pathetic Democratic Party, but the uh, inflation reduction uh, bill, which has no inflation reduction in it, it's a war against fossil fuels. It's a war against business. It's a war against economic growth. It's a war against capitalism. And I think it's pathetic, Senator. I mean, I just think it's pathetic. Is this the best we can do? Really? (laughs) They've tried for eight months to get something done, and they come up with this? I mean – I'm sure you're talking about it on the campaign trail in Wisconsin. And Lord knows, I hope you get reelected by a ton. But really, is this the best America can do? Well, good morning, Larry. It certainly makes a very strong case for gridlock in Washington, D.C., doesn't it? Yeah. (laughs) That's really been been the case for the entire Biden administration. We'd be so much better off passing nothing Hmm. other than the basic appropriation bills, which we don't do. I mean, that's what people need to understand is, you know, one of the primary functions of Congress should be, first of all, oversight to make sure that what the government's doing, they're doing it the right way. They're not causing more harm than good. But then it is as painful as this is for me to say to fund the government. Now, I'm all for funding the priorities, you know, our military and, you know, security and the things that were enumerated in the Constitution for the federal government to do. We've stepped so far out of the constraints of the federal government. But we're getting involved in so many things that the federal government has no uh, capability of doing. So what, what, what they're trying to do is they're trying to uh, set up a, a communist-like industrial planning mm. system. Mm. And it's not going to work. I mean, gov- government literally cannot outthink the, the, the marvel of the free market system. Now, I'm not saying laissez-faire capitalism is perfect. And I'm not saying government can't nudge it in the right directions. But, you know, for example, all this green energy fantasy spending in here. Think of Solyndra. But what government is not thinking of, what what my colleagues that are voting for this are not thinking about is, is this even possible? I mean, where are we going to get the rare earth chemicals or minerals? Who's going to be producing all that? You know, all this renewable energy, uh, all, all the basic supplies Almost all of them come from China. You know, we're 70, 80, 90 percent dependent on China. You know, a lot of the mining goes on in Chile and Peru, not, not the most stable governments. So as we move down this path toward unreliable renewable, renewable energy, I mean, just in its, you know, on its face, 
Renewable energy is not as reliable as fossil fuel. It makes our grids vulnerable. But when you consider the supply chains, what we're going to need, the, the dramatic increase in mining that we're going to uh, have to develop to, to meet these goals, they're not thinking how vulnerable we're going to become on nations that are pretty unstable, maybe not necessarily our friends. So that's why I always refer to this, the green energy fantasy, because that's what it is. It, it maybe sounds good politically, maybe makes for good political rhetoric. You know, we're, we're going to go into this marvelous uh, renewable energy future where, where energy is free, apparently, because it comes from the sun and the wind, but it's not free. It has dramatic environmental impacts that are just ignored and it makes us vulnerable. And it, all this stuff is being ignored, not to mention the cost. I mean, the self-inflicted wound on our economy of all these things, the tax increases. I mean, this, no. So you are right. that This is, this is crazy, but, that, you know, that's what this federal government is like nowadays. I mean, it is, it's an alternate universe here, Larry, and, and they just, Democrats are as de- detached from reality as they are from the truth. Senator Johnson, I... I just want to posit this thought. I do not think the majority of Americans want to end fossil fuels. There's never been a mandate for that. There's never been any overwhelming elections. There's never been any overwhelming. In fact, the polls show much different results. People are not dumb. They know the cost of this is exploding. I mean, the gasoline price and all that goes with it, but... People also know what you just said is, you know, these these wind turbines and I'm not against wind and solar, but they're not reliable. They're not sustainable. People know that they don't want their electric power grid systems to end the use of fossil fuels. I mean, in other words, where does it say that Americans want to end oil and natural gas or for that matter, coal? Where does it say that? What election showed that? What has happened over time, and you're not, you know, you're, we're, we're of the same vintage, basically. Yes. So we watched the scare of global cooling, right? I mean, the, the <laughs> earth is going to freeze. We're, we're, we're going to have, you know, you know, we're back to the ice age. You know, then it became global warming. Then they couldn't really decide what it was, so it became climate change. <laughs> so th- this, is, this is a state of fear that the left likes to create, the, the, and because the, the mainstream media is, is of the left, they're happy to create the state of fear and help sell their magazines, their newspapers, and their broadcasts. So they create the state of fear that the world's going to end. And then they have political figures like Al Gore becoming multi-multi-millionaires, you know, taking advantage of it, but making all these predictions that never come true. But nobody ever goes back and says, hey, you know, hey Al, what, wasn't, wasn't Manhattan supposed to be underwater by now? Yes. Is that what you're predicting? You know, I, I thought the world was going to end in 12 years like 25 years ago. Manhattan is underwater because we're having a crime wave. But sorry, that's a different segment. Precisely. But again, they create the state of fear so that the public, uh, you know, in mass can only look, you know, for something this massive, only the government can relieve that fear with these programs that aren't going to work. Again, it's, it's all rhetoric. It's all driven by complicit and corrupt media. And that's the state we're in right now. It's 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 very sad. I mean, it's I can't tell you how frustrating it is. I was saying nobody can out frustrate me. It's <laughs> it's just it's amazing how, how lunatic it is here in Washington D.C. I mean, every every poll I look at, every poll I look at has 
so-called climate change about 15th on the list, like inflation, okay, cost of living, jobs, gasoline, groceries, crime, borders. I don't see climate change. I mean, you have to look hard down the list in the fine print. That's my point. You know what's in here? I mean, I'm sure you do know what's in here. But I'm looking at this stuff. They've got all these taxes to make fossil fuels more expensive. Now, 16.4 cents uh, per gallon excise tax, 33% hike on uh, drilling, 500% hike on lease rates, uh, big increases in methane fees, $45 billion. Listen to this. I'm sorry, $45 million, Senator Johnson, uh, to the Environmental Protection Agency. And here's the tricky thing. So it can regulate gas ha- um, um, greenhouse gases. Now, that was the essence of the West Virginia EPA decision, which went against the EPA. Uh, they're trying to put a backdoor regulation that will allow the EPA to regulate greenhouse gases. Now, this whole thing, this, this is, you know, this is against what the court just said. And they're raising the cost of all fossil fuels which will enrage Americans some more. I'm just, you know, there's a lot wrong with this crazy bill, but this is one of the points. I'm just, I come back to this and I hope you're raising this in Wisconsin. People in Wisconsin, I think have more common sense than the rest of the world, or at least the ones in New York and Washington, DC. Nobody ever said no clear election. We want to end fossil fuels. Where was that? Show me that election. Not so not in the thirteenth congressional district of New York. Okay, that's different because it's a socialist state. But around the country, sir, where's where did that re- election result come from? So people actually do want to drive their vehicle more than one hundred and fifty, hundred right. miles. Right. They, they want greater range. They they don't want to drive one hundred fifty, pull off on the side, wait for two hours to you know get in line to plug your car in for thirty minutes while it recharges. Uh, so no, you're you're exactly right and. What I'm trying to point out in Wisconsin is regardless of what disaster you're looking at that's results from the Biden administration, it didn't just happen. It's not like Joe Biden just happens to be unlucky that you know, all these things are happening on his watch. No, he caused them all. Hmm. I mean, his, his policies, his radical left policies, open borders, you know, as you're saying, they are purposely driving up the cost of fossil fuels. You know, record gasoline prices didn't just happen. They caused it. They wanted it to happen. Because they want to force people into electric vehicles, and they said, you know, they're, they're just ignoring the environmental impact of all the mining and, and the fact that we even have. I mean, are we going to be able to supply this? So those costs will go through the roof as well. And you're right, people can't get by nowadays. You know, I was reading an article that one of the, and by the way, we're not creating jobs; we're just filling them. Mm. The, the jobs are out there; they just need to be filled. But one, one of the reasons they're being filled is people are having to take on a second job. It's not not like that many more people are entering the workforce. It's, you know, people are just having to take on an extra job in order to pay for 9.1% inflation for the record gas prices, the higher gro- grocery prices. So now I'm, I'm trying to point out to the folks in Wisconsin that all the pain you are feeling, the reason you are struggling is because of Democrat governance. Yes. Again, made, made possible and supported by the complicit and corrupt left-wing media. I mean, there is, you know, this bill, I and mean, obviously it's much, much, much smaller than the first $5 trillion bill. But the point I'm making, 
There's no inflation reduction. What there is is a war against fossil fuels, which is like a war against every working person and consumer in the country. There's a war against business. There's a war against economic growth. There's a war against free market enterprise and capitalism. This is big government socialism. I mean, this is the most pathetic thing I've ever seen. And they just keep whittling it down and whittling it down. And, you know, they bought off my friend Joe Manchin. I'm sure he's your friend, too. Uh, they got Cinema to sign on, although she did get a good tax change. Uh, Senator Ron Johnson, I w- just take a break, okay? Both catch our breath. Take a quick break and come back. I want you to tell us about how it's going in Wisconsin because it is so important that you are reelected, I want to say. So important. One of the leading figures, you understand business and markets and how the world really works. So important. I'm Larry Kudlow, folks. We're here on Johnson, and we will be back just after this quick break. From Wall Street to the White House, this is the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. We are here with Senator Ron Johnson of uh, Wisconsin, one of the most important uh, elections in the country. It is essential that Senator Johnson be reelected. Essential. Uh, Senator, I want I want to talk about your race, but one more thing. These, this IRS business, okay, so they're going to spend whatever, $80 billion. They're supposed to hire 87,000 agents, blah, blah, blah. Uh, and that's going to yield $250 billion in higher revenues, less the $80 billion in spending. So it's net deficit reduction. Look, I'm just thinking that Americans are law-abiding. They are not deli- this uh, pr- this prejudgment in Washington that Americans are all out there being tax cheats and breaking the law. It's not true. The law, the tax code, is so complicated, sir. Nobody can figure out what this thing means. And you know what? Every bill that passes, including the Chips Plus bill, and certainly this goofball inflation reduction bill, which is inflation increase bill. They keep layering on tax credits and deductions with complicated qualifications. You know what I mean? Who? Nobody can figure this stuff out. That's the problem with the damn tax code. It isn't that we need, uh, you know, 87,000 more IRS agents. And I would think people in Wisconsin would be just as furious as this anybody else in the country. You know, Larry, uh, back when we were doing tax reform, under your old boss, yep. you remember, I, I always said I, I don't like the term tax reform. I, I like the term tax simplification yes. and tax simplification, okay? Yes. So I, I read analysis that the vast majority of the taxes collected is going to come from the middle class from this procedure. And, and you're right. You, I've, I've seen the, the studies where they'll send out tax returns to five different tax EPAs. They get five completely different answers um, because it is way too complex. We should have a far simpler tax code. Income should be income. You know, if you want to make provision for capital gains, you know, index the inflation out of it, and then taxes as income. So, yeah, I'm 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 all for simplification and rational tax code, but that's not what we have. We have an incredibly complex one, and I would argue an irrational one. I, I think it's impossible to engineer, to socially and economically engineer through the tax code, but that's what we do because, again, in this alternate universe, people think they actually can, you know, play industrial planner and you know, be the conductor over an industry that can't. And they're, they're not that smart. Nobody's that smart. That's it. I mean, these other, these new bills, all this Green New Deal stuff, and then I'm going to go in the chip subsidies. Uh, 
Ron Johnson, they're they're creating all these new tax credits, which are indecipherable and opaque and so complicated. And all that is is spending through the tax code. As you say, this is government direction of the economy. You know, this is big government socialism. We're just going to all these tax credits are going to create more IRS problems, not less. And what's amazing? When, when businesses take advantage of the tax credits, then they get attacked for not paying their fair share. Right. That's it. They, they That's comply it. with the tax code. <laughs> they, they use the incentives. They invest in that stuff. They, they end up lowering their tax bill. And then they get attacked like they're, you know, they're evil because they're not paying their fair share. No, they're just complying with this awful tax code. No, it's, it's really sick. That's it. You are so right. That's a, such, you know, that was the issue with this alternative corporate minimum tax. So these companies, these large companies went out, they used 100% uh, immediate write-off expenses for plants and equipments and buildings and technology, and then they get attacked because they're not paying their fair share. That's exactly right. And they were simply using the code. That's all. And we put it in there deliberately. Um, So what's doing in Wisconsin? You have to win. So really, by the way, you have not invited me out to Madison or wherever to give speeches in your favor. I'm not going to take it personally. I just put you on the TV and radio shows. I have been out to Wisconsin giving such speeches, but it is essential that you win. How is the race, Ron Johnson? Well, I'd love to have you out here. I'm fortunately stuck in D.C. here. But, you know, <laughs> right. what, what is interesting, Larry, is that the Democrats have just put on display what little respect they have for voters and democracy. Yeah, I I had a large field of potential opponents on the Democrat side. They cleared the field. We we had one individual spent $12 million, and about a week and a half ago, he just stepped aside. Hmm. And then the next opponent stepped aside. Then the next opponent stepped aside. So the power brokers here in D.C.'s picked the Democrat nominee for Democrats in Wisconsin. And, And, Larry, they picked by far the most radical leftist out of the entire field. You know, our, our, our current lieutenant governor who wrote the bill, didn't pass, for low bail, no bail. Oh. In other words, let, let criminals out on the street with no bail no, so they can offend again. Um, he incited the Kenosha riots. Mm-hmm. He said that, that that shooting was a vendetta. Um, no, they picked the most radical leftist. I mean, this guy has, will support all this massive deficit spending that caused inflation. He will be right there with him on the Green New Deal fantasy so in a in a sane world this election shouldn't even be close but it's wisconsin and we're pretty right down the middle so it's a tough race so my my website is ron johnson for senate.com i'm gonna need a lot of help a couple weeks ago was the last time i saw the figure they'd already spent 46 million dollars trying to destroy me politically lying about me distorting my record 46 million bucks and i didn't even have an opponent except i will say i have the worst opponent the mainstream media in Wisconsin, they want to take me out. They want they want two Democrat senators. They want one, you know, from the radical left. And that's you know, you can't even put a dollar figure on the media lying and distorting. Of course, you, know, you saw what they did to, to your old boss. Yes. Uh, they're relentless and they're powerful. Yeah, but the people know better. I mean, you're you're a common sense guy. You're a business guy. You're a law and order guy. I mean, I, I think you're going to win because I think the tide, I think the force is with you. I mean, I think um, I think after September, when these races clarify, 
It's going to be a big GOP sweep. The Senate will be closer. The House is not going to be close. The Senate may be closer. You're you're going to win. I mean, you need you need people with a business background, and you're a law and order guy, and you're a law and order border guy, and people in Wisconsin, I think, are no different than anybody else. And Wisconsin has a lot of industry, doesn't it? A lot of manufacturing. They don't want sky high uh, fuel prices and power prices, do they? I mean, they buy into this. Green New Deal, climate change stuff? Yeah, Larry, we're, we're one of the leading manufacturing states. Yeah. I mean, we just about everything. Yeah. Metals, plastics, and food. And no, we, we, are, a, we are a large manufacturing state. So no, all, all, these, all these policies promoted by the left are, are very destructive for our state. And uh, so again, I hope people pay attention. I hope they're not swayed by the lies and distortions of the media. Uh, because you're right, this is crucial. And then if, if we do win, by the way, Biden will still be in, in office and be frustrating. We do have to, as William Buckley instructed us, stand athwart history, yell stop. Mm. We have to, but then we have to put forward our agenda. And I think it's pretty simple. You go back to what worked. You go back to what Donald Trump gave us uh, in terms of record economy. You go back to a competitive, I'd, I'd like to see a much more sim- a simpler and more rational tax code. Start reducing regulation. Yeah, don't, don't heap it on. Reduce regulation. You know, people don't realize the cost of regulation. Mm. That, that, that is inflationary. Yeah. If that costs businesses to comply, they pass those costs along to consumers and prices. We have to secure a border. We have to support law enforcement. We have to have a strong military. I mean, our, our, our world is in peril because of the weakness of the Biden administration. I mean, tyrants notice it. Our adversaries are taking advantage of this moment of weakness in America, but but we can rebuild it. But we have to unify. We have to heal this nation, which is what Biden said was his goal in his inaugural address. He's done the exact opposite. Mm. Well, this radio broadcast is heard throughout the Middle West. So the message is going to get out there. I'll tell you, if, if there's something for me to do out there, I would do it. I'm kind of tired. I'd love to have you come out. We got, again, the campaign's just kicking off now. We'll absolutely get you out there. I'd love to have you. Yeah. You know that. Well, I do. And you and I have been pals ever since you started running, ever since you won. You've done a fabulous job. Common sense. Common sense. I mean, here's the thing, Senator. It's like these. this Democratic Party today, circa 2022, does not care about the growth and of the middle class, ordinary working folks. They don't care. They've got their you know, obsessions about climate change and hating rich people. They don't care about economic growth. They don't even use the word economic growth and prosperity. All right, they're closing us down. Senator Ron Johnson, big winner in Wisconsin. You're terrific, sir. All right, folks, we're going to take a break. I'm Larry Kudlow. What are we going to do? Michael Goodwin on the other side of the break. We're going to talk about this New York crime, law and order, and economic problem and why Lee Zeldin, Congressman Lee Zeldin, is really the last hope for this state. I'm Larry Kudlow. Michael Goodwin from the New York Post up next. Stay with us, folks. Having lots of fun. Are you having fun? I'm having fun. It's the Larry Kudlow Show. Free market prosperity starts here. Now, here's Larry Kudlow. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. Great to be with you. A special guest today, Michael Goodwin. Pulitzer Prize winning columnist for the. We, all right, we're trying. We'll get him back. We we had him and we lost him. 
Uh, but he wrote a great column er- earlier in the week, Michael Goodwin from the New York Post, and uh, it's about Lee Zeldin. And uh, Lee Zeldin, who is a congressman from Suffolk County, as you may know, I guess this is directed more at the New York side of our audience, but that's okay. Uh, Zeldin, a first-rate guy, candidate for governor, Republican candidate for governor, uh, running against uh, Governor Hochul. And my view about Lee Zeldin is very simple. He is the last hope for New York State and New York City. He is the last hope. If we're going to straighten this thing out regarding crime, law and order, taxes, the economy, Zeldin is the last hope we have. Hochul is uh, running as a far-left socialist. She is soft on crime. There's no bail, no jail. Murder rates are up. Uh, Even Mayor Adams, Eric Adams, is not getting any help from Hochul. The governor, in this state, the governor has a lot of power. I mean, she could fire this crazy guy, Alvin Bragg. She can fire him, but she won't. Uh, She could change the laws uh, regarding what judges can do with criminals, but she won't. All right, we get Mike Goodwin back. Good. We got Michael Goodwin back. I knew we could uh, do this. The uh, electronics of New York. Maybe it's the last thing that still works here. Anyway, Michael Goodwin, um, first of all, I have not spoken to you in a while. I miss you, so I'm glad you're coming back on the show. And I'm looking at your column. GOP has shot at win. Uh, Real Lee. Look, I'm... I, Michael, I make no bones about it. I think Zeldin is at, his his election is crucial to saving this city and this state, and so I want to talk about that because your column is optimistic about his chances. I spoke to Lee. I guess it was yesterday. I had a nice conversation with Lee. Fifteen minutes, twenty minutes or so. It's about uh, crime and it's about the economy. And you're saying, and I I hope you're right. Zeldin has a good shot at this. Well, good morning, Larry. Um, yes, look, the the latest poll, the the real the first poll to come out after the primary season has him down by 14 points. Now, that's not a cliffhanger by any stretch, but it is certainly th- three months from the election. Uh, there's certainly plenty of time to make that up. Uh, and by way of comparison, in 2014, at the same stage, the first week of August of 2014, Andrew Cuomo was an incumbent running against the Republican challenger, then Rob Astorino. Cuomo was up by 32 points in that same week, first week of August, and he ended up winning by uh, 14. So Astorino managed to shave off 18 points of the lead. And that's just one example, I think, that uh, if you look um, – at the last four, the last four elections, the Republican candidate uh, in New York State has never gotten more than forty percent. Now, Zeldin on, on, in this poll is already at thirty-nine percent, mm. and he says his own polling shows him, shows the race even closer than fourteen points. So, I think, however you dissect these numbers. 
they are they are something of a warning shot to the Democrats, to Kathy Hochul, the governor. Uh, and, and I think they should encourage Republicans to to see that this is a winnable race. And if if this one isn't winnable, Larry, I'm not sure which one would be. I mean, there's no Kathy Hochul is in a unique situation, uh, succeeded the disgraced Andrew Cuomo. Uh, has not been elected to the position yet. There's not a lot of enthusiasm for her. She hasn't been able to instill a kind of discipline within the party. There's a lot of sniping at her. The mayor of New York, Eric Adams, is actually closer to Zeldin Mm. uh, on crime issues than, than he is Hochul. In fact, the New York Times the other day had a story on Adams' disputes with Hochul over crime and what the state could do about it, and basically cited Zeldin as another person having an argument with Hochul on the same issues. I mean, so that's an unusual situation, to say the least, but I think it speaks to the fact that Hochul, uh, whatever she was once in her life, has drifted far left is now either afraid of or part of the legislative leader cabal in Albany, which has, you know, turn them loose. That's their motto when it comes to judges, when it comes to DAs. There's the Alvin Bragg situation in Manhattan. And I thought it was interesting when Ron DeSantis suspended a prosecutor in Florida for not enforcing the law, for vowing not to enforce certain laws uh, that's what Zeldin has been saying all along, that he would he would suspend or fire Alvin Bragg as Manhattan DA for failure to enforce the law. So Hochul, I think, is under some pressure here, uh, not just in the poll, but but among restless Democrats who really see the city and the state sliding away further and further away from being a civilized place to live and work and raise a family. It's and New York City is not alone in the state. I mean, you look at all of the upstate cities, Buffalo, Binghamton, uh, Utica, uh, Rochester, they've all got serious crime problems. And so I think this is a moment where if the Republicans can unite, uh, uh, Zeldin won the primary It was a contested, spirited primary. He won it. So he should be able to unite the Republican and the conservative parties to give himself a real shot. You know, I think he's the last hope for this city and state. Uh, Your point about uh, Eric Adams is a very important point. Um, Actually, I spoke to the mayor this week just briefly, but uh, Kathy Hochul, again, as you say, whatever she might have been in the past, she's thrown in with the far left of her party. They are favoring the criminals over the victims. Uh, Bragg should have been fired. Judges should have much more discretion to set appropriate bear, a bail. This stuff, you know, Michael, it's, you, you get these, these people, what, they jump over turnstiles, then they fight the cops, um, and, and then they get released in a couple of hours. I mean, I think normal, common sense people hate that stuff. And Zeldin is clearly the guy that will solve it. And the crime issue is probably going to be number one, economy probably number two, maybe corruption number three, because I think Hochul is very corrupt. Maybe we'll talk about that. You mentioned that in your column, what she's doing. 
the Buffalo football stadium or whatever it is and yeah. giving mm-hmm. you know handing out contracts to her donors. I mean, people pick up on that. But the basic issue is crime, the lack of safety. And crime, you know, uh, Michael Goodwin, safe streets are like tax cuts. You know, people will come out. Uh, they'll work in the buildings again. They'll open up new businesses. But they won't if uh, if they can't take the subways safely. They won't if they can't walk the streets safely. That's why Zeldin can win. I believe that's why Zeldin can win. I, I mean, you, you, we're we're saying we're speaking from the same uh, book here, Larry. I think that this is an opportunity because the Democrats are so overt in what they are doing. They're not hiding it. Right. I mean, when you think about what they've done with on the criminal justice thing, on taxes, on quality of life issues, I mean, they just keep sticking it to people and with there, there are no consequences. I mean, Andrew Cuomo, despite New York State losing another House seat, uh, which is at one point not so during his father's tenure, New York had 41 House seats. Hmm. It's now going to have 26. Hmm. Uh, I mean, you have had a continual decline in the the quality of life in New York. You have had um, the people moving out because of the taxes. Uh, So New York is just not growing. It's not a vibrant place. And, you know, the pandemic certainly drove a very big nail in the coffin. But you still see a lot of vacant storefronts that were occupied until the pandemic. But all the more reason why people who are thinking of coming back to the city or moving to the city for the first time or opening a business here, all the more reason why they need to feel safe about it. Look, if you're an employer and you're going to open a business and you're worried about your employees on the subway, you're worried about them getting robbed or getting stuck up in the store. I mean, all of these things factor into your thinking. And then when it comes to your own family, it's going to be double that. So, there's so many disincentives right now in the city and the state that it's kind of remarkable that it's holding together uh, as much as it is. You know, Zeldin, um, Zeldin's a tough guy, okay? He's mild-mannered. He's not a screamer. But I've known him for years, Michael. You probably have too. He is a strong guy. He has a strong backbone. So my reckoning is if he wins – he will follow through. He will fire Alvin Bragg. He will go after the legislature. He will change the way judges can set bail and so forth and so on. In other words, I don't think these are idle promises. I think you're looking at a guy who's very, very strong. People should not underestimate him because his uh, public persona is a, a mild persona, which I think is quite pleasing to people, by the way. But he will not relent. I mean, I've no, I worked with him in Washington when I was down there, uh, talking to him on the phone all the time. He's tough. He'll he'll get it done. Well, and I, I would say one other thing too, Larry, that uh, the the governor's position in New York is a, is a powerful yes. one. I mean, it's it's yes. You, you, one of the key features that you have that George Pataki won in won in a courts fight was the line item veto. The New York state governor has that power, which so you're going to let's assume Zeldin wins. He's going to inherit a very heavily Democratic legislature, probably veto proof in both houses. Uh, So he he is going to have to 
I think, wage a lot of war and maybe have to make some concessions. But he doesn't go in there unarmed. I mean, having having the ability to do a line item veto means something in the budget. You can you can essentially pass the budget and veto specific parts of it that you find egregious spending, wasteful, whatever. Uh, that's a that's a very big power to have for a governor. Does he need the legislature to fire Alvin Bragg? No. Uh, look, this is a rarely tested thing, and it would be contested. Um, the Alvin Bragg was elected by 83% of the voters in Manhattan. Um, he's black, um, smart man, uh, well-educated, um, and not without his defenders. This would be a, a very big deal for, uh, I mean, for example, I don't, I can't think offhand of any governor in recent times who has removed either a prosecutor or a mayor uh, from office. Now, if you'll recall, there was talk that maybe Andrew Cuomo would remove Bill de Blasio as mayor because he was doing such a terrible job. Mm. Cuomo concluded he had the authority. uh, And there doesn't seem to be any real dispute that the governor has the authority to remove other elected officials who are, in effect, uh, breaking their oath of office, kind of neglecting their primary duty. Um, Nonetheless, it would be a politically fraught fight. And while it would be a symbolic thing to do, uh, Alvin Bragg is not the only problem when it comes to prosecutors. Uh, I mean, the New York City has five, five, one for each county, and the other, and four of the others are are similar to Bragg. They mm-hmm. just didn't, they just didn't tout themselves that way in the way he did. But they're all sort of very progressive in this th- idea that it's the the criminal justice system is the problem, not the criminals. Maybe um, he, maybe he fires a couple of them. Well, that he may have to do that. Uh, and changes the climate, Michael. You know, sends a well, message, changes the whole climate. Well, and, and that's the sort of thing, you know, that, that Rudy Giuliani did in New York City, right? You, you have to be willing to stand up alone mm. and, and make, make these dramatic moves that you believe are foundational to changing the, the direction that, that is destroying the city. And once you do that, once you begin to show results, more people come to your side and join the fight. But in the beginning, it can be a lonely fight. Mm. And it, it takes patience. It takes kind of a stick to You know the New York Times is going to be trying to destroy him. They're going to try to destroy him even before he's elected. Mm. Uh, Hochul is going to just paint him as a, a Trump uh, acolyte. And th- they're going to destroy him on issues unrelated to the crime problem, unrelated to the economy. So it'll be abortion and Trump. That will be the big negatives uh, that Hoku will use against him. Um, So I think it's I think I think a lot of people that uh, in New York City who have been pining for a chance for change, who have been, you know, are going to have to pull pull behind Zeldin, get behind him. I mean, I think he, he's at a financial disadvantage. Um, 
you know, there are generally twice as many Democrats as Republicans enrolled. Now, one of the good signs in that poll showed him having a slight edge among independents already. Mm. And get this, Larry, only eight points behind on the Latino vote. Right, right. and right. he believes he has a real shot at winning the Latino vote. Oh, he will. And just, yeah, and just one more quick thing on numbers. Um, in New York City, if you for, for a Republican to win statewide, you need to get somewhere around 30% of the city's vote. Uh, for example, the last two uh, Republican gubernatorial candidates got under 20%. And though they did very well in other parts of the state, the, the Democrats run up the score in New York City. So if you can get 30 percent of the city vote, you have a real shot at, at winning statewide. Now, Zeldin is, uh, and according to his latest polls, is, is around, I think, 25, 28, 29, somewhere in the high 20s. Uh, Curtis Sliwa, who ran for mayor on the Republican line, got 29 percent of the mm. vote. Mm. So uh, Zeldin believes he can get into the mid-30s. Then he's and a winner. As, as you said to me, if you get into the mid-30s as a Republican in New York City, um, it, it, he said if you're under 30, it, it's hard to win. If you're 35, it's hard to lose. Mm. And I think so. He's got a plan. And, and being from Long Island, uh, I, th- I think he has a real potential to make inroads in the city. Michael Goodwin, uh, keep the line open. I got to take a quick break. Now I want to come back, talk about national politics, too. Just keep the line open for me. Folks, talking to Michael Goodwin, New York Post columnist extraordinaire, Pulitzer Prize winner. I'm Larry Kudlow. Lee Zeldin's the last hope for this city and the state. We'll be right back. Please stick around. We'll be right back. Now, back to the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. We're talking to Michael Goodwin, distinguished columnist for the New York Post, Pulitzer Prize winner. Michael, we just got a couple minutes left. Uh, on this Zeldin Hochul race again, I'm going to say, it's just me, I think she's corrupt. I think this, whatever, billion dollars to this uh, Buffalo sports stadium, uh, her husband's involved in the concessions. Uh, doing Penn Station over again. Her donors are at the inside. I mean, I know I know. there's always a lot of insider dealing in this state, but I think she's off the charts and she's corrupt, and I think that's going to become another issue. I, I agree with you, Larry, in the sense that, uh, as I wrote in the column, one of the first things she did after Andrew Cuomo resigned was to start calling all of his donors <laughs> uh, to raise money. Yeah. I, I mean, if... As I said in the column, it's mystifying. She had sort of built an image as being apart from him. They were not close. So that's how she could escape the sexual harassment stuff, that she didn't know anything about it. She was not close to him. And it's true. They were not close. Uh, And yet, why then would she go into office and start acting just like he did? You know, raising money, giving contracts. 
I mean, it makes no sense. You had a chance to start over. You had a chance to create a first new impression. And it became just, you know, as someone's been, people have been writing Cuomo 2.0, Cuomo mm. in a skirt. Mm. I mean, it, it's it, there's no there's very little distinction between him and her in, in these habits, meeting in secret to resolve the budget. I mean, it's just why would you begin your your governorship that way if you want to create a new impression for voters? Weak character. And I'll tell you, New York is going to have a clean sweep. That's coming. Michael Goodwin, thanks a million, my friend. Appreciate it. Folks, we're going to have the former administrator of the EPA, Environment Protection Agency, Andrew Wheeler. We're going to talk about greenhouse gases and fossil fuels and what the hell's wrong with the Democratic Party on this. Folks would like to have reliable, affordable energy, and the Democrats don't. I'm Kudlow. We'll be right back. Please hang around with us. From Wall Street to the White House, this is The Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. I want to talk some more about this goofy, bad, anti-growth, and especially anti-fossil fuels, war against fossil fuels, that the Democrats are going to push in this uh, Build Back Better bill, which will do nothing to cut Inflation, the Inflation Reduction Act, which does nothing to cut inflation. All right. We're bringing in my pal, Andrew Wheeler, who was a former head, former administrator of the EPA, Environmental Protection, under President Trump. And currently he's uh, Governor Glenn Youngkin's uh, Office of Regulatory Management, which is great. Andy Wheeler, welcome back. So I want to go right to the issue. We talked about this on the TV show, but then I had okay. – um, uh, Rick Perry was on yesterday. You were on Thursday. Now, right. regarding the EPA and regarding the issue of regulating greenhouse gases, Rick's view, Governor Perry's view, former Energy Secretary Perry's view, uh, he says that um, that this bill is going to give the EPA massive new power. And whether they change the, you know, generating utility system it remains to be seen. But this is a big leap. They did not have this greenhouse gas power. Now they will. And they got, I don't know, $45 million to go after it. Um, you seem to be a little less certain when we talked on Thursday. But I think the war against fossil fuels, I think they're giving the EPA, I'm not going to say carte blanche, but the door is open or the foot is in the door and the door is going to open. What do you think? Well, on Thursday, I was referring specifically to the Supreme Court case, West Virginia versus EPA, and that's a little muddled on whether or not this bill overturns that decision. It It certainly gives them money to do so, but it doesn't give them clear legislative authority. But you are right. There are other provisions, and there's actually billions of dollars that are going to end up going to EPA on the environmental side to push back against fossil fuel. You know, the one provision that I was just reading this morning is an an additional $3 billion for local community environmental groups in the form of block grants. And that $3 billion is going to be used for litigation to stop projects. There's a lot of money here, and a lot of the money is going to be aimed at stopping fossil fuel. And there's... You know, on the one hand, the bill 
you know, and Senator Manchin is saying that this is going to increase offshore um, offshore oil and gas drilling. And what it does is it reopens three um, sales that, that, that the Biden administration canceled. So it really is going back to what was already supposed to happen. So it's reinstating what was missed by the Biden moratoriums. Um, but at the same time, they're increasing the fees, the lease rates, by 500 mm. percent. So, yes, we're going back to what we would have been at as far as lease sales, but they're increasing, they're increasing the taxes and the, the lease fees. So it's, it's really designed to put the, the nail in the coffin of fossil fuels. You know, Andrew, um, on this point, nail in the coffin. So uh, governor of Alaska, what's his name, Dan uh, Sullivan, has this permitting bill. He used the Congressional uh, Review Act and gets it. He wins. I mean, he, he won. Uh, and Manchin voted for it. All the Republicans voted for it, and, and Manchin voted for it. It passed. Now, that could overturn their the Biden's permitting regulation, right? The Biden's stopped Trump's permitting reforms, right? Now, this would overturn right. the Biden decision and, and, in effect, reinstate Trump's timely, you know, rapid one- to two-year permitting reforms. The right. first thing that – but every Democrat voted against it except Manchin. And the White House puts out a bulletin and says, "If the, you know, we are opposed to this." Now, it probably would never get through the House, at least Correct. not not now. But so here's Manchin saying, "Well, they're giving me assurances we're going to have a vote on permitting in September, but this vote shows the Democrats do not want expedited permitting. And by the way, it's for everything, right? It's for." Roads, bridges, and tunnels, and of course, it's for drilling, pipelining, refining, and so forth. Now, isn't that a tip-off? It, it, it is. It's also, but it's also for installing renewable energy projects, installing right. wind farms and solar farms. So it's for everything. It's for all federal projects. And what the you know what we did in the Trump administration is say that a federal decision, not that not that permits had to be approved, but a federal decision within two years. If you go back and you think the the Empire State Building was permanent, uh, designed, permitted, and built within two years, and all President Trump said was we're going to have a decision on federal permits within two years, and the Biden administration is reversing that. And you're right, every Democrat voted against it. Now Manchin is saying, oh, I've got this deal for a separate vote on my permitting, and he's hoping to attach it to you know a must-pass bill like a continuing resolution. But, you know, Senator Kane from Virginia came out this week and said there is there is no deal on the on Manchin's permitting bill passing. The only deal was that it will be considered and voted on. And he said himself that he's not sure if he could support it. So, you know, there is there is no you know, and a permitting bill would need 60 votes. So, you know, Manchin has traded this these extra taxes on the people of West Virginia, 21 billion in energy taxes alone. Mm for a promise of a permitting bill that may never happen. And even if it does, if he has a permitting bill that the Democrats can support when they all voted against, quite frankly, a modest permitting package from the Trump administration, two years, which I think is, I think any permit decision can be made within two years. If the Democrats can't support that, then what they can support isn't worth the, you know, the, the, the paper it's printed on. Joe Manchin's a good guy. He's a friend of mine, but he sold his soul and he's going to get screwed. 
They're not going to help them. They, no. If they give them a vote, they're going to vote against it. You're exactly right. I forgot about that, by the way. It would have to be 60 votes. He'll never get 60 votes. I'm just saying, you know, this. Dan Sullivan's a good guy from Alaska. He Dan's. He he, this was a leading indicator of how they're going to screw Manchin, okay? <laughs> Not only did all the Democrats except Manchin vote against the Sullivan Congressional Review Act uh, change, but the White House said they're going to veto it. So the White House is saying to Manchin, we are going to screw you. And I don't know how the hell he could have misinterpreted that. I mean, I could have told him that. In fact, I did tell him that when I talked to him last week. I mean, really, huh? This whole stupid bill, which is so totally anti-fossil fuel. So let's go back. How much damage? Tell me, what did you say? The billions of dollars are going to the EPA to do what, Andrew Wheeler? That's the big well, question. It, exactly. I'm not. I'm not sure what they can do with all this money. You know, it's there's. I believe it's 29 billion for um, hmm. for a greenhouse gas bank but oh. then there's also three billion for these local community environmental block grants and local com- that's that's code for you know environmental organizations that sue to stop projects mm. and they sue to stop anything um, and then you know there's the energy taxes alone you know people forget that an energy tax is very is a regressive tax because it hurts lower income people more, more than higher income people. Mm-hmm. If you make less than $30,000 a year, you're paying 20% of your out-of-pocket um, costs go to energy, mm-hmm. whether it's gasoline or it's air conditioning or it's heating for your home. 20% of your take-home pay goes to energy. And when you increase the energy taxes by $21 billion, it's going to really hurt a lot of families in low-income areas, and there's a lot of low-income areas in West Virginia that this is going to hurt. Um that the EPA, you're right. It's 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 some thirty billion dollars for for greenhouse gas. They're calling it environmental justice. Mm. Um, there's also money for um, energy efficiency projects at homes, which is is probably a good thing. But if you go back and you look at the money that was spent in the 2009 o- Obama um, stimulus bill, you know they they. If if you go back and look at the renewable energy money that was spent under that bill, a majority of that money went to renewable energy companies that contributed to the Obama-Biden campaign in 2008. Mm. And a lot of them went bankrupt. It was like some 40% of them went under within two years. So you've, you've got to – and I hope there's going to be um, you, a lot of congressional oversight next year by, by the Republicans in Congress when they take back the Congress this fall on how the money is going to be spent because a lot of that is going to be wasted if, the, if passed – if past practices, future prediction, a lot of money was wasted in 2009, and that was a drop in the bucket compared to the amount of money in this bill today. Billions were wasted then, hundreds of millions were wasted then, and billions could be wasted now. And it's, a lot of it's going to go to friends of the administration and companies that are are, are not really sound. Hmm. Um, and, and there's, you know, and, and they keep it's very contradictory. Like like I said on the offshore leasing. You know, there's there's also money in there saying that you you know you have to buy for electric vehicles uh, components made in the United States, but the Biden administration is making it more difficult to mine critical minerals to go into those batteries. Mm. So it's going to be almost impossible to meet the requirements for the EV batteries in the bill 
if you can't mine the materials here in the United States. And they won't it's give the very, permits. They won't give the permits no. for the mining. I mean, that's the exactly. history of the thing. So the EPA exactly. is the fulcrum. The They're really, the EPA is the absolute fulcrum now. And they're just getting loaded up with power, authority, and money. They they are, and it's it's not that the you know the rank and file career employees there are going to do bad things with it. It's just that they're going to be overwhelmed with the amount of money and the time pressure to make decisions and get the money out the door. A lot of bad decisions will probably be made yeah. in the interest of expediency by the administration. All right. Thank you, Andrew Wheeler. We really appreciate it. Thanks for the update. Good we time. will talk soon. Folks, we're going to take a quick break. Then we're going to talk about drug price controls, which is another essential part of this goofy, awful bill. We've got Tomas Phillipson, former chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors. Drug price controls. Sounds like a great idea. Actually, it's a terrible idea. I'm Kudlow. We'll be right back. From Wall Street to the White House, this is The Larry Kudlow Show. All right. Welcome back, folks. Some more about this stupid bill. I mean, they're voting on it. They're going to have a voterama, all kinds of amendments on the bill today, Saturday. I guess most of it will be this afternoon. It's a terrible bill. Terrible. Every single part of this bill is terrible. But Democrats bragging, oh, we're going to have drug price controls, and that's going to lower the cost of drugs. So we're going to bring in Tomas Phillipson, former chairman of the White House Council of Economic Advisors, He's teaching school at the University of Chicago. He's a specialist in healthcare. Tomas, why is this a fraud? I mean, is it really going to lower costs or is it going to actually increase drug costs? Well, I mean, there's two opposing. I mean, good to be with you, first of all, Larry. There's two opposing effects here. One is the claimed price reductions uh, for current uh, people who buy drugs. The more severe effect is that this is obviously going to reduce uh, investment into this industry in terms of research and development. And so that there's a lot of foregone health that's taking place in the future. This industry is essentially responsible for half of the longevity gain in the last 30 years, which is, you know, the most valuable thing you can have in life is to live longer. And so it's an, an enormous value uh, that's being reduced by this kind of uh, measure or regulations. But what the CBO said, Congressional <laughs> Budget Office, is that the prescription drug price controls will cause prices for new drugs to be more expensive. Now, I thought that the Democrats were going to lower the cost of drugs, but the CBO, which is not exactly a Republican free market supply side ally. They're saying, wait a minute, new drugs will be more costly. Well, I think that the CBO has downplayed the negative effects of these uh, price controls for a very long time. And, I, you know, it's almost like a Berkeley alumni association within CBO in some sense. <laughs> and, and we've been countering their analysis with what the science says about what the effect of this bill is. What they're referring to in terms of the price increases is that part of the bill has to do with that companies can't raise prices over time more than the CPI inflation, the general inflation in the economy, which will tend to have an upward pressure on launch prices at the start of the <clears throat> when you come on the market at the start of the uh, product cycle because you know that you can't raise it in the future. There's some of that going on. 
But on the other hand, if this was raising prices, you wouldn't have the whole biotech and pharma industry screaming at this bill. So I take it with a grain of salt what they're saying. And I take the guys who work in this industry to understand the bill better, which is that the, it's going to be a massive, massive hit to uh, innovative returns in this industry, which has been you know, of enormous value because longevity is so valued uh, relative to other things like the GDP. <clears throat> the GDP and inflation effects of the Inflation Reduction Act are just a sideshow in value relative to the cut in longevity that this uh, mm. pharmaceutical innovation price controls uh, will induce. So they're saying, Thomas, they're saying that if they put this thing through, I saw Medicare would, you know, quote unquote, negotiate prices. So I just think of it as price controls. But they're saying it's going to save hundreds of billions of dollars, uh, I guess, for ordinary folks. Is that true? Well, they're going to lower the prices on they, – they start with 10 drugs, which they say, are, you know, it's a small set of drugs, but it's, it's ranked by spending. So it's the blockbuster drugs that they're stopping. And the blockbuster drug, like mo- in most innovative industries, the winners fund all the losers. So essentially what will happen is that the winners who are the blockbusters that where you make money when you go to market are funding about 90% of the failures and going through FDA to start to finish will take a hit. So this is going to affect the whole R&D uh, development process because if you're living off these very good successes. I'm sure there's other – like book industry is the same way. You know, you have best-selling books, et cetera, that are funding all the losers. And it's the same with drugs. A lot of drugs go to market. They make up – they sell them on the market to limit their losses, but they're not making up the R&D costs going to the market, the fixed costs going there. So, so what I think people don't understand about this bill – and these 10 drugs are going to then be expanded to 20 and 25 in the future. It's just a – is literally legislating a, a slippery slope in the future, and, and it's going to count, it's going to capture more and more of the of the winners in the market, which are then not going to be able to fund all their failures mm. to getting there. Right. So basically, this is going to cut back on investment. It's going to cut back on um, innovation. It's going to cut back on new life saving drugs. I mean, that's really the short, yeah. long and short of it. Um, I thought. Look, we went through this in the White House. If you last three, four, five years, particularly, you know, we had reforms. Remember, Scott Gottlieb put a lot of generics on the market. It was very important deregulation. The drug prices, Tomas, have not really gone up. No, exactly. That's another part of this. I mean, they're selling this as a kind of Nixonian price controls uh, on a market that basically has not risen in real terms. In fact, pharmaceutical spending has contributed negatively to total healthcare spending because the real 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 spending in pharmaceuticals have many times gone down when real spending of, of healthcare spending has gone up. But you're right in terms of you know what we did differently is sort of the difference between using competition as opposed to regulation to try to control prices. And what the Trump administration did through through, through Scott basically uh, more laxer uh, entry requirements for generics 
is to basically improve generic entry, which is important because about 90% or more of prescriptions are generic. They're not brand names. So the vast majority of prescriptions that people take are generic. And we basically opened the floodgates on that competition, and that was why the prices came down for the first time in 46 years during Trump. And that's basically pointing towards that a more effective way of basically controlling uh, prices is competition, not regulation. And many, in fact, many of the reasons we have high prices in the pharmaceutical sector in the U.S. is because of stupid government regulations. For example, we pay doctors more the more expensive drug they use. Mm. And tell you, that's, that's like having a demand side that likes higher prices. Mm. And, 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 and that's one reason we do that in the outpatient programs where all the cancer drugs are, et cetera, which are physician-administrated in what's called Part D of, of mm. Medicare. And it's a very perverse system for price competition when the doctors earn more the more expensive drugs they use. Government regulation will make these prices higher and will make the whole story worse. You know, Scott Gottlieb is a very good FDA commissioner. I brought him into the Oval to talk to Trump because, you know, um, Alex Azar, even the president, were flirting with pr- drug price controls, as you recall. And they didn't, you know, we had simple CPI charts, Thomas, right, that showed uh, prescription uh, – in, in general, drug – actually, at one point, I think for a year or two, the drug prices actually fell o- across the yeah. board, actually declined. Yeah. Now they've popped yeah. up a little bit, so it's about even over the last four or five years. It's just – it's the it's the highest, newest stuff that has initially high prices, right? But then over time, those prices come down. Yeah. So you have a lot of what's called therapeutic competition, meaning competition from other brands, that is to say other drugs on patents. And then ultimately you have generic competition when the patents run run out, which brings down prices. But in general, I think there's a misperception of what's the important price here. What you what you should be thinking about is what I call the price of health as opposed to the price of health care. So when you have, let's say you have HIV that in the mid-1990s went from a death sentence to, you know, a chronic disease, really, uh, through these innovations. Before those innovations, you couldn't buy a longer life at any price. Mm. So any innovation is essentially a huge price reduction in the price of health that you can obtain from being prohibitively expensive down to something. And people don't see that. They just stare at the drug prices. But what's the alternative? not being able to buy it at any price. Right. <laughs> That's the alternative. Not being around. Thinking. All right, yeah. Tomas Phillips in the University of Chicago, former CEA chair. Thank you, buddy. Appreciate Thank it. You, Larry. Good take rundown. Care. Folks, we are going to take a little bit of a break, and then we'll come back and talk about the stock market. We're going to talk about the jobs. We're going to talk about interest rates. What is going on? I don't know. Buy stocks for the long run. The cavalry's coming. Things are going to get better. I'm Larry Kudlow. Please stick around. It's the Larry Kudlow Show. Free market prosperity starts here. Now, here's Larry Kudlow. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. Great to be with you. We're going to do some stock market work. By the way, during the week, Mondays through Fridays, join us. Fox Business Network. The name of the show is Kudlow. 4 to 5 p.m. every day. 
And by the way, if you can't get it at four, call up your favorite nine-year-old who will show you, teach you how to DVR the show. You'll never miss a thing. Here, you can live stream us on the Internet, LarryCudlowShow.com. Plays all across the country, throughout the world, and the solar system. So, stocks, let's see. Stocks didn't really do much this past week. Dow's off a little bit, 40 points, 42 points. The S&P was up 15. Interest rates went up, though, quite a bit. Across the yield curve, well, we had big gains. Let's see. Two-year note was up 34 bips. Five-year note, 28 bips. Ten-year note, 18 bips. The 30-year mortgage rate, 13 bips. 541 on the 30-year mortgage rate. Housing's in very bad shape, by the way. And we had a pretty strong jobs report, very strong jobs report. Uh, Non-farm payrolls up 528,000. Private payrolls up 471,000. Um, household employment from which the unemployment rate comes, not so good, but still up 179,000. The unemployment rate down a tick to 3.5%. And, and uh, wages, average hourly earnings for blue-collar production workers uh, up 410, 6.2% increase over the past 12 months. The latest inflation read, however, is 91 that for June, July inflation, CPI will be a little bit lower because of the drop in uh, gas prices, but it's still going to be over 8%, so they're still underwater. All right, let's uh, bring in our distinguished guest, Jim Urio, director of TJM Institutional Services, Chicago's leading restaurateur, and Jeff Kilberg, chief investment officer at Sanctuary Wealth and Notre Dame's finest graduate. All right, gentlemen. Um, Jim Uriel, let me start with you. What does this mean, this jobs report, which was surprisingly strong, what does this mean for Federal Reserve policy? Looks to well, me like they're going to have to, you know, the, the idea, some people in the market, the idea they're not going to raise rates in September. Yes, they are. They're going to raise rates by 75 basis points in September. I don't know why the, the Fed fund futures market is pricing in a drop in Fed funds next year. I don't believe any of that stuff. But you tell me, what's going on here? Well, so when I when the Fed funds market disagrees with me, I always tend to go and say, where am I wrong? What am I missing? The fact that the Fed funds market right now is pricing in a 70% chance of a 75 basis point move, which shifted from a 75% chance of a 50 basis point move just before that number printed on Friday. But the fact they're saying that there's 0% chance of 100, to me, seems kind of silly. Um, after we saw that print, which was undoubtedly a good number, and I don't mean to be one of these guys saying, but, 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 I mean, there are some things, there's some clouds also. Just in the last week and a half, we saw a job reduction at Oracle, Amazon, Walmart, Geico announcing laughs. So there's, I'm confused by the number. However, the stocks got hit after the number, but the, uh, the premise was, well, the Fed's going to have to be a lot more aggressive. But that number by itself is completely immaterial when three days later we have the CPI number. As a matter of fact, if that good number, the solidly good number, 
comes with a much lower than expected CPI number on, I think it's Wednesday, um, then it should be stock market positive, meaning what the Fed is doing is working. If it comes in com- combined with a CPI number that just drops marginally, I think it's neutral. But if, if that CPI number is higher than expected on Wednesday, coupled with that strong job market, that could mean the Fed is going to shift into another gear. And that's when I think another um, another real plunge in the stock market could happen. I actually, that's not my base case. My base case is that it comes in better than expected. Larry, if we were playing a drinking game, Larry, and I took a sip every time Yurio said, but I'd be laying on the floor right now. <laughs> I try to use small words when I'm on with you, Jeff. <laughs> <laughs> but wait a second. What is the consensus on the CPI number? Uh, 8.6 with a 1.1 month over month, 8.6 year over year. So it's the month over month that we're looking at. Even if it, I believe, even if it came in zeros the rest of the year, the month over month, the year over year would still be six. I might have some of those numbers wrong, but that part you know can't drop that much. So we're looking. So 1.1 month over month, we we need that to be lower for me to think it's a good number. Well, but lower. consider this, Jeff Kilberg. Um, Whatever. So if the C- gasoline prices fell in July, so you're going to that's going to pick up. It's going to help the CPI. The month over month number is going to be a much smaller number. For all I know, it could be zero. Right. But the 12 month change is still going to be well over eight percent. The Fed's target for inflation is two. So I don't understand how the, the bond market can be until yesterday. The bonds were rallying interest rates falling. I mean, the 10 years come down a lot in the last few weeks. I, I don't understand what the market is thinking. I mean, inflation is going to be a difficult problem well above the Fed's target for another year. And they're going to have to raise the Fed funds target rate above the inflation rate. You know, this BS about the neutral rate, I mean, Jay Powell said this. I mean, he should really keep his yap shut. They should all keep their yap shut. All they do is confuse and mislead. The idea that 2.5% Fed funds rate, which is more or less where it is now, is a neutral rate is nonsense. It was neutral if the target was – if the policy got it down to 2. It's not 2. We're not going to see 2% inflation for uh, who knows, several years, many years. I don't know. I mean, that's what I don't understand right. about the market. I, don't, I think the market is, is irrationally exuberant. How's that? Well, Larry, you bring up a great point. And the Fed absolutely moved the goalposts. They moved the goalposts years ago when they were creating inflation. That's not talked enough about. But here they are with inflation, completely runaway inflation, the highest we've seen in 41 years. So to your point, yes, that CPI data, the biggest contributor for the month of June was certainly gas prices in that number. But it's interesting. You guys were giving me a really hard time last, we were on, last time we were on together about being too bullish. But we've seen a 15% bounce in the S&P 500 when, in my opinion, we had peak pessimism coupled with peak inflation. But to your point, I think we have a focus right now on this Fed path policy. It, it's almost like a bipolar, bipolar view we have of the Fed. Because we have to remember the velocity they injected when they were so accommodated with their balance sheet of $9 trillion right around Christmas time. Then they flipped and got hawkish. They went from 1.5% and 3.5%. And where my focus is, and for all your smart listeners, I think the real understanding is bond market leadership. I go back to where I cut my teeth in the Chicago Board of Trade and the 30-year futures pit. When you look at the, the futures pit, it really gives a better standing. What happened in the month of June when I, in my opinion, we had peak pessimism? And peak inflation, we saw the 10-year note go up to 3.5%. 
That was an oversold condition of futures prices, which is inversely related to the yield. Now we've seen yields come back. They've tucked back under. They sold at 282 on the week, but they were back under 275. I think that's really critical and allowed a short-term healing. I'm not saying we're out of the woods by any means, so I'm but not going to be overly optimistic. Explain to me. Explain to me. Yes. A two-year note is 323. <laughs> I have it. So call it three and a quarter. Explain to me the value of a two-year note at three and a quarter in a period where the inflation rate is eight plus. Huh? Really? That inversion. You're getting killed. simply not sustainable. Real interest rates are so negative, I wouldn't want to buy a – I mean, I will own stocks for the long run. Why would I own a bond when my real yield is like minus five percentage points? Correct. And I know Uriel likes to wear the Captain Obvious hat, but let me borrow from him for a second. Captain Obvious here is that the Federal Reserve has manipulated the bond market to such an extent that they're in quite the conundrum. So here they are. They own one-third of all 10-year issuance. So they have to figure out that, yes, this inviated yield curve of 41 base points is problematic, but it's not sustainable, Larry. Jim? So can, I, can I weigh in on that a little bit? Because I, I took a little catnip while Jeff was talking there, but I'm, I'm feeling a little better now. So the, <laughs> the fact that the two years there. I love you, you, you know I love you. The fact that the two years where it is, it has to me, it has to be saying that part of this inflation, I hate to say this, by the way, that a, a bigger part than we think is supply chain related. And we've seen some of that begin to heal itself in a very, very minor way. And I think that the market still keeps telling itself that this is all going to be over soon. And guys like you and guys like me until recently were saying, I wouldn't be so sure that a lot of that's entrenched. And a lot of people don't even understand what it means when inflation starts to dissipate. That doesn't mean that prices are coming down. Inflation is a rate of change. I think a lot of people I talk to are like, geez, one of these prices is going to come down. The answer to that is never. But the, the supply chain could be healing itself soon. The break-evens have gone from th- – the five-year break-evens have gone from 3.6 to 2.6 in a relatively short period of time. You mentioned gas and oil coming down, but I can extend that to copper, to lumber, to a lot of different uh, commodities, you know, traded commodities. And, again, they come down based on market position as much as they come down on an actual fundamental change. The fundamental change has to be small, and then all of a sudden the, all the longs start to sell. But I think we could see some better news on inflation in the next couple months i don't want to own a bond well that makes sense i, I do not want either. to own a bond i still think the stocks are the place to be and i think if the s&p settles above 4250 and again i bring technical analysis into it as well and that's not just voodoo lines on a chart for the people who are listening it's just it's the momentum and the psychology and i think if the s&p can settle above 4250 which is a little bit from here i think it's a it's green light full steam ahead so you're buying the market you're buying stocks right. Yeah, I, well, not quite yet. I, I need a little bit more confirmation. I have started to buy. I posted that yesterday, a thing on Twitter, just because people were, were misinterpreting that jobs number as meaning that the Fed is going to be gangbusters. And it, it probably does, but it might not. And we were a little too knee-jerk, I think. Larry, if I could jump in for one second. I know you're not buying a bond, and I'm adverse because the fixed income market has been decimated all year long. But I think across the globe, you look at the German 10-year boom at 94 basis points, I think our 10-year is attractive at 282. And that's where I think you're getting some buyers come in after just a high-velocity, very scary 
first two quarters of 2022. But to Larry's point, what Jeff's saying is that you buy it then on appreciation, not on the rate. Larry doesn't want to have it for the rate because the rate seems stupid. Oh, correct. If you can make an argument that the, that the world's coming in to buy our bonds because of an attractive relative basis, that makes some sense. That's what you're saying, right, Jeff? Yeah, I have my trader hat on, 100%. Okay, good. <laughs> That's good. Yeah, great. So I'm gonna, you guys are going to put me in a bond that's yielding three and a quarter with an inflation rate <laughs> Jeff is, of eight not me. and a half. All right, I don't. And you get you a know, free cheeseburger from Uriel's restaurant with I that. Mean, yeah, this is like Chicago math. What is this here? <laughs> no, what kind of arithmetic yeah. do you guys have in the Midwest? I don't understand this. That's Jeff, not me. Uh, I agree with you. Well, I where, wouldn't be where, touching bonds. Hmm. And look, just to tilt quickly in the earnings. I mean, you look at. Last week, 80% of the companies so far in the S&P 500 have reported better than expected results. So I want to be in stocks, Larry. I like these essential blue-chip tangible names. We have seen a little bit of a move higher in the NASDAQ name. You've seen recovery there. But I think with that really strong jobs report of 528,000 jobs, I think that NASDAQ 100 may cool because the 10-year note is going to gravitate and float back up to 3%. All right. We've got to take, we yeah. take a quick break, a very quick break. Jim Urio, TJM Institutional Services. Jeff Kilberg, Sanctuary Wealth, and Notre Dame. I'm Larry Kudlow. We'll be right back. Now, back to the Larry Kudlow Show. All right. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. We're talking stocks and the economy with uh, Jim Urio, TJM Institutional Services, Jeff Kilberg, Sanctuary Wealth. Um, Jim Urio, let me go back to uh, before the jobs report. Uh, looked to me like Wall Street was anticipating that recession. I mean, after all, the the first two quarters of 2020 were negative. Maybe revised, but they're negative. So it looked like a recession in the first half of the year. But recession brings down interest rates uh, because something called demand destruction was going to reduce inflation. Now, two questions. Let's deal with the first one first. Does the jobs report yesterday take recession off the table, Mr. Uriel? I thought... You know, that we were in a recession, you know, back, back, and I learned in business school before people started changing, it was two quarters in a row of negative growth. We saw that. Um, the jobs number was, like I said to start this off, was confusing, but I will throw in some other things. Small business optimism, their future conditions component of it, all-time low, 48 years, uh, in the 48-year history of that, of that series. Um, the yield curve, twos versus tens, went to negative 47 basis points yesterday. Now, when you see that deep of an inversion. It doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be commensurate with a deep, deep recession, but what it does mean is the recession is closer than you think historically with that sort of, and now I think it went back to like um, 40, negative 40 basis points. So I, I do think the recession, I, I thought the Fed was going to pivot in September. I've told you both guys that several different times. I think I'm wrong on that by about a month, a month and a half. I do think the Fed's going to pivot closely in this year, and I know you disagree with that. You said it before, but I, I do think a recession's coming. I think we're in a recession. I mean, you can get a good jobs number or two, um, but I don't think that changes the story. Yeah, but then how do you balance that you said they won't be ever, ever, because you think inflation's too entrenched for them yes. to ever be lowering rates? Okay, Look, I get it. You're, I mean, I will argue that the basic inflation rate is not less than 5 or 6%. And I use wages, you know, as a proxy for that. But I think the broad PCE deflator is a proxy for that. And I think the core deflator is a proxy for that. And I think it's going to be very hard to bring that down. Uh, gasoline prices will fluctuate. 
Um, and I understand commodity prices have sold off 25, 35%, although you're still way above the bottom back in the middle of 2020. But I think it's going to be very sticky. I think there's a wage price st- uh, spiral that's embedded in the economy. And I think the Fed's going to have to deal with that. And I don't, I mean, Jeff Kilberg, I'll ask the same question of you. A recession does not necessarily mean inflation goes away. And Milton Friedman taught us 50, 60, 70 years ago, Milton Friedman taught us that monetary lags are long and variable. So the money supply has come down. That's good, M2. The balance sheet, not so much, but we'll see about that. Uh, Gasoline prices are off, whatever, 50, 60 cents. But the basic inflation, which has covered the whole universe, the whole constellation of prices, um, you're stuck. You've got a tough inflation story that's going to go on for a year or two or more. See, I'm in the camp, Larry, and I'm going to push back a little bit. I'm actually going to agree with Yurio. Yes, your listeners heard that right. I, I think the technical recession, we can check that box of two consecutive negative GDP quarters, but I don't see a recession. I'm fortunate enough, I crisscrossed the country visiting my sanctuary wealth partner firms. And every town I go to, from Austin to Walnut Creek to New York to Short Hills, New Jersey, I don't see a recession. But you bring up a great point about inflation. However, the camp that I'm in, Larry, is I think we will see inflation abate quicker. I think it's all about velocity. And that's the one thing that I don't think we really appreciate as investors and traders is the velocity that the Federal Reserve has injected into the marketplace. So when you talk about the way they moved the balance sheet from $4.5 trillion post-pandemic to $9 trillion, we're not really reducing that. Mm. I know they're talking about $95 billion starts in September, but they're not really, really going at it. And that's where I think Powell is a bit of a chicken hawk. Yes, he's hawkish. Yes, he's trying to combat inflation. But the fact of the matter is that they have nearly an $8.5 trillion balance sheet by the end of 2023 – I still think we're okay. And the recessionary data points, if you look in a midterm election year, more importantly, if you look in the year after, going back 85 years, Larry, that subsequent year after a midterm election year, the S&P 500 return is 15.1%. Therefore, I'm not in this recessionary camp, at least not until 2024, 2025. I think my head is spinning listening to these <laughs> short-term. Honestly, God, this is like, again, this is Chicago arithmetic. I mean – does anybody, did any of you guys ever look, you know, like a long-term view? Sure. but Which it's is a, what it's, average investors look at? <laughs> no, of course we do. I, I have long-term money, too. And that's that when I said that's the 4250 to settle above that, that to me will mean that this correction is basically over. And if you look at the la- over the last 30 years and you look at the length of time this correction's happened, the, you know, seven months we're into it now and the depth of it, it seems like it, 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 stands out as being somewhat good enough if you take out the you know real estate correction and the and the uh, tech stocks but those were different in that massive massive leveraged positions were built up in assets that i don't see needing to unwind you know what i mean for right. three decades some people Jimmy buying brings houses. up a great point and i'd love to ask you say that one more time say that one more time jimmy brings up a great point you heard me <laughs> but it is different this time the fed reserve has never intervened or manipulate markets to the extent they have. So, yes, the pendulum swings too far whenever the Federal Reserve pushes it, but we've never been here before. We can't really use a precedent on, you know, the 210 inversion predicting uh, a recession. Would you agree, Larry? By the way, I think the original model is the New York Fed model. It's actually the three-month T-bill and the 10-year, which is is not yet Mm. quite quite inverted. That was the original Mm. model. But 
putting that aside, I would say for long-term investors who are listening to this show, who are not professionals, you know, buy stocks, particularly buy them on, on weakness. Buy the indexes, own all the stock markets, buy, you know, you're owning America, but don't look at your monthly statement for another two years. Don't look at it because it's not going to be good. Amen. It's just not going to be good. Well, I don't believe the two years part, but I heard Jeff Kilberg say something so right about two years ago. He said when the VIX is at 60 is when you should be buying. And we haven't seen that panic yet. <laughs> Jim Urio, Jeff Kilberg. Wow, Chicago crowd. Very difficult. I'm Larry Kudlow. Money and politics Move next up with Steve Moore and Monica Crowley. From Wall Street to the White House, this is The Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, everybody. It's Larry Kudlow. We're going to talk some money and politics with Monica Crowley, former Assistant Treasury Secretary and author, sponsor of the Monica Crowley podcast. I can't get on it, so I'm not good enough, but I'm going to keep trying very hard. And uh, do we get Steve Moore? He's coming. Yeah, I know it's my. Who else is on? All right, we're trying to find my buddy, Steve Moore. So, Monica Love, it's just you and me. And Hello, Larry. Hello. How are things? So, you know, it's interesting. I was just talking to one of the producers here. So, Joe Manchin, who's uh, basically a good guy, um, he told me la- last Monday, all right, we got Steve Moore, uh, that he's going to get a permit bill which will permit fossil fuel development, production, drilling, pipelines, refineries. Going to get a permit bill. And that was part of the deal with, with, um, with Chuck Schumer. So here's what happens. It's just so great. So Dan Sullivan, Senator Dan Sullivan, Alaska, has a great bill, a resolution, using the Congressional Review Act to repeal, overturn – the Biden's anti-permitting. They basically stopped the Trump permitting one to two years. And that passed. Every Republican voted for it. And every Democrat voted against it, except Manchin. Manchin voted for the Sullivan resolution. Okay, that's good. But here's the problem. Every Democrat voted against it. And as soon as the bill, the resolution passed, this would have overturned the anti-permitting the White House put out a circular that said basically if it ever passed the House, they'd veto it. Now, that is what you call a leading indicator. Yeah. Okay, so that mansion, I don't know what he was smoking or what he was dreaming, but he will not get his permits. And yet, Monica Crowley, he has thrown in with this ridiculous uh, anti, whatever it's called, Inflation Reduction Act, which would do no such thing. What do you make of that? I mean, is that political naivete or is there something going on underneath that that we don't know about? Well, uh, Larry, first of all, it's great to be with you and Steve Moore, two of my favorite men of all time. So thank you for having <laughs> By me. By the way, have you had um, Steve Moore on your podcast? Because I can't make the cut. I just wanted if Steve made the cut. Stop. <laughs> I, I need to stop this disinformation right now, Larry. Because, yes, Steve Moore has been on my podcast. But I yeah. Oh, my God. Invited, I recently invited you on and you could not make it. Oh. So, 
I don't want to be thrown under the bus by you, Larry Kudlow. You know how much I love you. And you will be on my podcast for sure, right. for sure. Good. Um, so when we get back to Mansion, I think it, it's either one of two explanations. Either he's really that stupid to believe the Democrats' word. Oh, we give you our word that we're going to go forward with this permitting, with this pipeline and the rest. Either he's really that dumb that he's believed their nonsense, their promises to him, or he knows that they're not going to follow through and simply doesn't care. He just needed the political cover to go down the road of this Inflation Reduction Act, which actually should be called the Another Nail in America's Coffin Act, because <laughs> this thing is just or the Obscene Spending Taxes and, and Crazy Inflation Act, because the idea that they want to spend another trillion dollars uh, and that's not going to contribute to a weakening economy and skyrocketing inflation even more is patently absurd. So they know what they're doing, Larry and Steve. They just don't care. And so the idea that that Manchin was might have been going along with this the whole time and wanted to squeeze out as many promises, as many sweetheart deals for himself and his state as he could, that that's usually how the political game is played. But, Larry, to your point, the Democrats have no intention on delivering yeah. this stuff for Manchin None. or West Virginia. I mean, Steve Moore, the whole bill is anti-fossil fuels. The whole bill is kill fossil fuels, everything. And by the by... This bill gives the EPA tremendous new authority to regulate greenhouse gases, which up to now they have not had. That was the basis of the West Virginia EPA Supreme Court decision. Yeah, yep. through, you know, through various means, they will have much more money and much more authority now to go after all greenhouse gases, including you know, the utility generation system. So this is, you know, for Joe Manchin, who's from an oil and gas and coal state, man, I just never understood this. Never understood it. Yeah, well, good to be with both of you guys. Thank you, Monica, for the kind words. And I was I was thrilled uh, uh, to be on your podcast. And Larry, congratulations. You're number one. Hello, oh. Cudlow, <laughs> number one on Fox Business. So fantastic. Congratulations. It's amazing. How many how long has, have you been doing that show now? But well, the show is uh, about a year and a half old. Year, yeah, yeah. In the last five months, the last five months we've been the number one rated business show for Amazing. all all networks. CNBC, you know why? Because you have Monica Crowley on all the time. That's why. Have you uh, and Monica and Liz Peak, who's so, not here today? You guys are making the show. You're making the show. So, um, I was listening. I was watching Fox News earlier, um, and they had. Uh, the Senator Warner from um, Virginia, yeah, who moderate. masquerades as kind of a moderate, yep. uh, although there there aren't any one lesson we've learned, I think, over the last 18 months. Unfortunately, there is no such thing as a moderate Democrat anymore. But he was making this claim that this is an all of the above energy bill. Mm. Now, that's laughable. Mm. <laughs> this is a bill that that the, the, the number one industry that is absolutely clobbered by this bill is the coal industry. Hmm. The coal industry is going to get decimated, and we still get, you know, a lot of our energy from coal. We get about 35 percent of our uh, – it used to be about 50 percent, and we still get about a third of our electric power from coal. And coal is necessary as a backup, even if even if you want to switch to other forms of energy, you need coal as a backup. So 
natural gas gets hit hard here. And I, I agree with exactly what you and Monica were saying, that I don't care what kind of handshake deal Joe Manchin got. Does anybody believe that this energy department and this EPA under Joe Biden is going to do anything but use the authority under this bill to put a dagger right into the heart of, of our uh, of our fossil fuel industry? And I want to make one other point. We are this is so tragic. We are now to the left of Europe mm. on these climate change policies. It's like a some kind of weird religion has taken over in the Democratic Party where they're completely subservient to the radical environmentalists. We all want clean air and clean water and open spaces and parks, but this isn't the environmental movement of our, of our, of our parents. I mean, they are trying to decimate our free market system and move to a form of energy, which the rest of the world is moving against. China, by the way, is building 40 new mega coal plants as we speak. Well, your, uh, your point on Europe is important. Europe has reclassified natural gas uh, as clean. As clean. That's correct. Yep. As green. Yep. And it is clean. And it is clean. And it's actually, I think, you know, nat gas and nuclear, that's the future for the next 100 years. Yes, but, I agree. Monica, let me go back and uh, enlarge this. If you look at the authority and power they're giving the EPA, if you look at the authority and power uh, they're giving the government with respect to drug price controls. Uh, if you look at the authority and power uh, they're giving, I mean, they want to expand Obamacare subsidies. It's going to cost about $250, $300 billion at least before it's all said and done. If you look at the authority they're giving the IRS, Monica, my take is this bill, put, put aside the smaller debates about inflation, which have been discredited, this is about central planning. This is about big government socialism. This is about redistributionism. This has nothing to do with economic growth, nothing to do with prosperity, nothing to do with curbing inflation. This is essentially another democratic attack on the free enterprise system. This is central planning socialism. Every single part of this is central planning socialism. Yes, and I'm so glad that you raised the bigger point, the bigger objective of all of this, Larry, because I've been screaming this from the rooftops for many, many years uh, to get people to understand that the Democrat, I call them the Democrat communists, because this is really communism. And it's just, you know, communism never dies. It just gets rebranded. So all of this is just rebranded neo-Marxism, neo-communism. You know, you laid out all of the government agencies that are now being empowered to go way beyond their initial uh, objective, their initial agenda. And, you know, my first job was with former President Nixon during the last years of his life. And one of the things he and I talked about often was the EPA, because Nixon began the EPA. And Nixon said to me, look, at the time, in the late 60s, early 70s, we had all of these headline stories about dirty water and dirty air and corporations just dumping toxic chemicals and drinking water and so on. So the agency was created strictly for those two reasons, to make sure our air was clean and our water was clean and drinkable. That's it. And Nixon in the, in the mid-1990s was talking to me about how the EPA just got completely hijacked mm. by the left by, and by the uh, Democrats and, and by the federal government to take on things that were completely unrelated. 
I raise that example because what we have seen over the last couple of decades from the left, but it's been mission creep by the Republicans who have failed to stop it, is the complete empowerment of the administrative state. And the reason that the left wants all of these executive agencies empowered to do things way beyond their original uh, mission is because that is the way to get around our constitutional system. That's the way to get around elected representatives that are supposed to give voice to the people. And what we want, it is the permanent bureaucracy that just carries out this radical agenda day in and day out with the ultimate objective of fundamentally transforming the nation away from economic liberty and toward this neo-Marxist model. I mean, Steve Moore, it's just interesting to me when you step back away from the specifics. I mean, EPA, IRS, Medicare, uh, and so forth. But really, the Democrats are the party of central planning. The Democrats are the party of the regulatory state. Uh, Steve uh, Forbes called it modern socialism through the regulatory state. That's where they're coming from. The Democrats have no interest in growth, no interest in prosperity, no interest in price stability. None of that's in here. And it's in general a war. It's so sure it's a war against uh, fossil fuels, but it's a war against free market capitalism. It's a war against the free enterprise system. It's a war against rewarding success. I mean, it's a war against the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. That's what they're representing. And I always ask, is this really the best America can do? And the answer is no. And the answer is that's why they're going to be rejected in November, I, I hope. Steve, you there? Oh, I was just saying that the, I agree with everything you guys were just saying. And... I think the biggest change I've seen in my lifetime, you know, I've been in Washington now for three decades, is you know, that when I first came to Washington, there were a lot of reasonable Democrats. We used to, we used to work with all the time. I remember, remember the 1986 Tax Reform yep. Act? Yep. That was people like Bill Bradley and Dick Gephardt and smart Democrats. We didn't always agree with them. But, you know, they passed a bill. I mean, it's amazing. Uh, 1986, a bill passed, I think, 97 to 3 in the Senate to lower tax rates and get rid of all the loopholes, as many of the loopholes as we could. And it was fantastic. And Reagan signed it. It was overwhelmingly bipartisan. Uh, the rate then was 28 percent. Larry, how many Democrats in Congress do you th- think today would vote for a 28 percent tax rate? Mm, zero. Zero. <laughs> Zero. Not one. I mean, it's just, it breaks my heart to say this. Now, Tom Phillipson, who you work with at the White House, uh, and I have a piece in The Wall Street Journal on Monday, basically saying what this bill does that we've been talking about is it takes up roughly 250 to 300 billion dollars from our pharmaceutical industry, mm-hmm. which saves lives, gave us Operation Warp Speed, the vaccine that saved a million lives across the world. It has come up with incredible innovations uh, in in cancer treatments and on and on. And, and we're taking the money from an industry that is incredibly hyper productive and saves millions of lives. And we're going to give that $300 million to the green energy lobby, the climate change industrial complex, Mm. which basically after 40 years still produces only 6% of our energy. Mm -hmm. It's it's the biggest waste of money in history. By the way, Tomas was just, just on, he was just on this show talking about that very subject. And incidentally, ironically, I mean, with drug price controls, 
through Medicare, which is more central planning, of course. Um, drug prices have basically been flat for four years. They have. And for a couple of those years, they actually fell. Why? Because uh, Gottlieb, uh, the FDA commissioner, Scott Gottlieb, deregulated generics and provided fantastic competition. The only increases in drug prices are the brand new high-end, you know, solutions uh, to essentially death diseases. So, yeah, they're going to pick up. They're going to have higher prices. Uh, and then it'll come down again, uh, which is the whole uh, point. Uh, that's the whole evolution of these things. Yeah. And, and that's what they're aiming at. But now they're going to have the price controls throughout the entire industry, which is crazy. By the way, if you want to if you want to bring down b- drug prices and you guys did, you guys did do that in the, the Trump administration. This was Scott exactly Gottlieb, right. by my name. He, very yeah. important yeah. guy, smart guy. And you and you did something else, which is one of Trump's great, great initiatives, which doesn't get enough credit, which is the right to right to try. Right to try oh, drugs that, you know, right, and I love right, that. But my point right. is, here's something that would actually reduce uh, drug prices. Why don't we get rid of the idea that everything has to be prescription drug? Why can't you just have more drugs sold over the counter at discounts? That So that there's an way. We, but why are we treating an industry, Larry, that is, as I said, saved millions and millions and millions of lives as some kind of, you know, villain industry. Mm. I mean, I'm on with these people, you know, uh, you uh, on Fox, and they, oh, this, these people are price gouging, and they're a terrible, you know, these people are horrible in the pharmaceutical industry. And I'm like, come on, tell me one industry. Do we want to win the race for the cure for cancer and heart disease and, and Alzheimer's and Parkinson's? How about Who oper- else is going to do it? How about you Operation know? Warp Speed? Exactly. No good deed goes unpunished in modern yeah. day Washington, D.C., yep. a.k.a. the D.C. Swamp. All right, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, I want to talk about the IRS. Monica Crowley, Assistant Treasury Secretary, see if she can defend the IRS, which reports up to the <laughs> Treasury Secretary. We have no Monica way. Crowley and Steve Moore. I'm Larry Kudlow. We'll be right back, folks. From Wall Street to the White House, this is the Larry Kudlow Show. Uh, welcome back, everybody. We are here with Monica Crowley and Steve Moore. We are talking money and politics. And Steve Moore, you and Steve Forbes have a piece in the New York Post today. It's a lovely article about the IRS. Look, at, I just want to say this. Um, this expansion of the IRS, again, this is part and parcel of what Monica was talking about. Uh, big government socialism, central planning, the regulatory state, et cetera, et cetera. But here's the thing. I don't care how many agents you can put on 10 million agents. The problem here is not that Americans are cheats. They are not tax cheats. They're law-abiding. The problem here is nobody understands the tax code. And one of the key points to that, which is being repeated in spades in this uh, terrible bill, is the proliferation of tax credits which, uh, by yep. the way, that includes refundable tax credits, which is just yep. check. It's all well, tax credits with all kinds of rules and regulations and income uh, income limits and so forth. Nobody understands this stuff. It's spending through the tax code, which yep. is wrecked the tax code. That's what's causing the problems with this. It's not as the Democrats would say that people are all a bunch of tax chiefs, particularly rich people. It's about the tax code that they have ruined. 
Yes, and you will never hear that from them because they prefer this labyrinthine complex tax code because they like to present it to the American people like only they can understand it. And therefore, only they can enforce it or the IRS and the Treasury Department will be enforcing this. It's the way the ruling class keeps control over everything. They've always argued, well, this governing is so complex and so complicated that only we mm. can do it. That's what one of the reasons why one of the many reasons why they hated Trump, because Trump had never done any of this before. And he walks into the presidency and he actually starts solving America's problems, making them all look bad and saying, hey, you know, if you've got a brain in your head, you could actually do this job. You don't have to be part of the ruling class. They hate that. But you're exactly right on the tax code. There's an easy solution to this, Larry and Steve, which you both know very well. And our good friend Steve Forbes has been talking about this for decades, which is a flat tax. Right. You know, you do a straightaway flat tax. Simple. You can debate the percentage, but it's simple. It's there. It applies to everybody at the same rate. And it's done. But they will never, never do that again because they, it's to their advantage in the ruling class to have this kind of complex tax code. And again, I would just point out a broader point, and it, it applies to the IRS and taxes, but applies across the board. They, th- this, is, this is how they maintain control over all of us, is that they exercise this power through these government agencies mm-hmm. and, again, try to keep you as off balance as possible. No, the biggest that's winners. That's how they move the radical agenda forward. The biggest winners in this bill is things like the EPA and the IRS. What does that tell you? Steve Moore, yep. the, other, um, the Democrats assume that successful people uh, are cheating. They just assume that. And so we have to do something about it and we have to hire 87,000 more. They just assume that. And the other yep. point I want to make is remember Lois Lerner. The IRS is going to – these – come on. They're going to go after conservative groups and religious groups and pro-life groups, right? We've seen this movie before, and that's what they – they are gilding this lily. This is going to be strictly partisan stuff. You wait and see. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, look. You don't have to imagine that they're going to do this. It's not a conspiracy that you're talking about, a conspiracy theory. I mean, it happened under Lois Lerner. By the way, she never testified and she was never put in jail. She she violated the law. She should be in jail. Uh, The the Republicans should have investigated that. For those who don't know what we're talking about, she was one of the heads of of enforcement at one of the major IRS bureaus and she basically just targeted any any republican donor or big conservative donor um they've done that already right monica with the justice department and the fbi they've politicized they've weaponized those agencies mm-hmm. so it's not a stretch to think they'll do exactly the same what thing they're gonna do at the irs this and yeah. you know the tax problem the so-called underreporting problem will never be solved unless we have a simplified tax code yeah. It has nothing to do with cheating and underreporting. And, you know, Democrats just assume that successful people have uh, broken the rules. Anyway, Steve Moore, Monica Crowley, thank you, kids, on a Saturday. We really appreciate it. Folks, I'm Larry Kudlow. Watch the Kudlow Show on Fox Business, 4 to 5 p.m. Monday through Friday. I'll be back here next weekend.